The passage of scripture we're going to look at here in just a moment from Colossians 3 is going to lead us to live out the new life that Christ gives us. That's what we've been talking about the last couple Sundays. Today's passage is going to cause us to focus on that in our relationships, at home, within our marriage, parent-child relationships, at work with those that we are in authority over and authority under. And so before we dive into this text, I want to lead us in prayer that God would live that new life out through us in those ways. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the beauty and the reality of uh, family, of marriage relationships in this church, of relationships between parents and their children of all ages in this church, the relationships that we have with those that we are in authority under out in our workplaces and in authority over as well. Father God, these relationships are good gifts. And so I want to pray right now for the marriages in our church. And ask, Father God, whether our our marriages are very strong or whether they are really struggling and weak or whether we're just kind of somewhere in the middle. God, we pray that that you would help each husband and wife who is a part of this church to experience the life of Christ in and through them. God, where we need to be confronted and, and have our own sins dealt with, I pray, Spirit of God, that you in your gentle but firm and truthful way would confront our sins, and our selfishness as it manifests itself within our marriages. God, give us the grace with one another as husbands and wives to love and serve and forgive one another the way you love and serve and forgive us. Give us the transformation to change where we need to change that we might better serve one another as spouses. God, we pray that you would grow the marriages in this church and that you would encourage every husband and wife who's struggling and fighting for the health of their marriage to become a relationship that reflects you. We also pray, God, for the relationships between parents and children in our church. I pray especially for all the parents who are raising younger children and teenage kids and getting ready to launch young adults. Father God, I pray that you would give them incredible wisdom and insight, that you would give moms and dads, where both are in the picture, a great teamwork with one another. God, for our single parents, we pray that you would provide them with the resources and the wisdom and the encouragement so that all of us as parents may parent our children well, to love them, to discipline them for their good, never out of anger or selfishness, and to love them unconditionally the way you love us. God, I pray for the kids in our church. We pray that they would be young men and women, boys and girls who learn to love who you are, who learn to respect the authority of parents who love them and thus come to trust that you love them as well. God, strengthen families, we pray in our church. And lastly, God, I pray for for the members of this church as we function out in our workplaces and in other places where we are either in authority over people or under other people's authority. God, would you lead us to see authority the way you do, not necessarily the way that we tend to see it as sinful people or the way that our culture sees it. God, would you help us to see authority relationships through the lens of scripture, that we would see authority as a way to love and serve people ultimately for your good and your glory. So God, make us a people who are different as we put on the new life of Christ in these relationships. For our good and your glory, we ask this in your son's name. Amen. The key question that's been driving us for the last several weeks as we've walked through the New Testament book of Colossians has been this. What has God called us as members of this church, to do and to be at such a time as this? That's the question we've been, we've been wrestling through. Who has God called us to be in the midst of much of the chaos going on around us? And we've been letting the New Testament book of Colossians inform our answer to that question. 
And we've sort of said repeatedly that while we don't necessarily have all of the answers to the big problems that are ailing our society, we do have very clear answers as to the kind of people God has called us to be and how we as a church can put him on display right here in our city through the way we live. And more specifically, through putting on the new life that Christ has given us as Christians. The book of Colossians has led us to recognize that, that we have a new life. If, you, if you're a Christian, you have a new life that already exists. Christ has made it and accomplished it for you. And yet, you have the choice to live out that new life or to continue to live out our old life, the life that he freed us from. And this book of the Bible has been urging us to take off that old life and put on the new life. And it's given us many examples of what that would look like. And we find another such set of examples today in our personal relationships. You see, ultimately, the book of Colossians was written to get the mind of first century Christians, to get their minds off of things that were adding to Jesus, which is really another way of saying they were taking away from Jesus. They were taking away from the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Colossians was written to get their minds off of those things and get them back onto the, the sufficiency of Christ and to see Christ as the object of their lives. And so that manifests itself in saying, we need to take off this old self that tries to do things our way and inject a little bit of God into it and instead recognize that Jesus gives us a whole new way of living to live out that new life in Christ. We've seen the last couple Sundays dozens of examples of what that might look like and how it can apply to our current cultural situation. And as we end chapter 3 of Colossians this morning, we're also going to see now what it looks like to live out the new life of Christ in relationships, in marriage relationships, parenting relationships, and in relationships where we are under economic and civil authority with others. The passage today is going to show us that the new life we have in Christ sees authority as a way to love and serve people for the glory of God. It's a completely different way to see authority. Rather than seeing it as something to use for our benefit or fight because we fear its abuse, the gospel leads us to see authority completely differently, to see it as a way to love and serve people for the ultimate glory of God. Let's see that as we look at our passage this morning from Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18 and going down to chapter 4, verse 1. God's word tells us this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the, the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. There is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word for his people. 
Lord, we ask now that you would bless the reading and the explanation of your word to the change of our hearts for our good and your glory. In Christ's name, amen. This brief section of Colossians is really an expansion of the very last verse we saw in last week's passage. If you back up to verse 17, it's really the headline verse. It says, whatever you do when you're living out the new life of Jesus, whatever you do in word or in deed, you do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So a life that is living out the new life that I have in Christ is one in which I'm doing everything for the glory of God and in the name of Jesus. That means we're doing it his way. We're doing it for his honor. We're pursuing his ends and his aims. That's basically what it means to live out the new life of Christ. <clears throat> now, in today's passage, the Apostle Paul expands on that by leading us to say, what does it look like to live out that new life in Christ in your home relationships, marriages, parents with their children, and vice versa, uh, masters with bond servants, uh, sort of a, an economic arrangement in which people could essentially indenture themselves or sort of sell their labor, as it were, to uh, a master to either work in the household or somewhere else. These authority relationships surrounding our homes, our most personal relationships, what does it look like to live out the new life of Christ there, to do everything for the glory of God in those relationships? That's what this morning's text is all about. The interesting thing about this paragraph is it kind of represents uh, what you might call some standard or stock teaching in first century churches. This is a, a set of, of principles that actually appear multiple times in multiple different books of the New Testament. It was pretty widely circulated teaching about how Christianity should play itself out in these most common relationships that people have within our marriages and parenting and, and uh, masters and bond servants. You'll find similar such passages in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, where the emphasis is on the marriage relationship, but it says quite a bit about parents and children and masters and bondservants. We also see similar teaching in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and Titus chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3. In each case, the emphasis is a little bit different, but the, the teaching is all the same. Marriages and parenting and masters and bondservants. What does it mean to be a Christian in these relationships? So, the passage we're reading is not really unique to the book of Colossians, which raises a question, like, then why is it here? Why is it here? What, what purpose does it serve in the argument that the book of Colossians is making? That we are to take off the old life and put on the new life of Christ in order to live out his sufficiency. The reason it's put here is because he's showing us more of what it means to take off that old life that we used to live and put on the new life. And there he ties it back into teachings that they've probably heard in other places before. Putting on the new life means to see authority as a way to love and serve people for the glory of God. And both of those are critical. It is a way to love and serve people, whether we're in authority or under authority, doesn't change. Authority is a way to love and serve people. So it's what we do, but it's also why we do it, for the glory of God. Authority is not something we primarily use for ourselves. And at the end of the day, it's not even something we primarily use for the benefit of other people. Even as we love and serve people, it is for the glory of God. This is important because authority and leadership were controversial and divisive topics back then. 
And we know that because authority and leadership are always controversial and divisive topics in every society, in every civilization, in every period of human history. In the home, in the workplace, and in the wider society, even today, right now, people are dividing over the issue of authority. What it is, and what it's for, and how leadership is being used and how it should be used. We have significantly different and contradictory views of this, and we're debating those in a way that is causing a lot of fractures in the society around us right now. Some naturally tend to see authority as a means to the end of remaking the world the way they believe it should be. You use authority sort of heavy-handedly to impose your view of the way things ought to be on everyone else. That's one way to, to approach authority. Whereas in our society, there's many others who seek to dismantle authority to the greatest extent possible because we fear exactly that. We fear the heavy-handed abuse of authority, and maybe we've experienced it, and so we come to doubt it and, and, and see it as suspect and always question it. Authority is almost always a bad thing in this mindset. What the Bible is presenting here, it, it's kind of telling us those, those two ideas are not really new and unique to modern American society. There's always been those abuses of authority and those who fight against authority in order to undermine the abuses. What the Bible's telling us here is that what's unique is that the gospel gives us a different way to see authority completely. What if the church was to model a different view of authority? What, what, if, what if our church, what, what if we were to model a different view of authority, one that, that sees authority as a way to serve and love others for the glory of God? Not something to be used heavy-handedly for our own benefit, nor something to be dismantled at every turn. But regardless of whether I'm in authority or under authority at the moment, what if we use it to love and serve people for the glory of God? Brothers and sisters, if we do that, I dare say the fame of Jesus would spread far and wide. Because Jesus' people would be demonstrating a whole different way to experience authority that's rooted in the gospel itself. This passage is telling us that that's our calling. And that's important because what, what follows are some very brief comments on these various relationships, marriages and parenting, and then these, um, uh, then a much, which are talked about briefly, and then a much longer discussion about the master and bondservant relationship. That's kind of how this uh, passage is structured. But all of it follows the same standard. This stock teaching is useful because we find ourselves in authority and under authority in different times and different places. Almost nobody is always under authority and almost nobody is always in authority. For example, a father in his home is in a position of leadership. He has authority over his children, but then he may go to work where he is, he's got a boss and he is an employee that he has to follow his boss's lead. So at work, he may be under authority. And that all happens in the same day. A mother same situation. She's a parent, so she has authority over her children. She's in the position of authority. Uh, maybe a supervisor at work. So there again, maybe she's in a position of authority. And yet, she answers to the police officer when she's driving home and the lights go on in the rearview mirror. She needs to obey that officer and pull over. We're under authority when we're out in society driving our cars around, you see. And certainly all of us were children for a time. We were under someone's authority. And yet many of us grow up and become parents ourselves. Now we're in authority. The, the point is simply this. 
whether we're in authority or under authority, we all interact with it all the time, and we interact with it from different points of view. Sometimes we're in authority, sometimes we're under it, and sometimes that happens in the same day, sometimes that happens in the same five minutes, depending on the relationship. The interesting thing about this passage is, regardless of whether we're in authority or under authority, it doesn't change the message. The new life of Christ sees authority as a way to serve and love people for the glory of God. This passage gives us, uh, using those three relationships, three examples of how that works. First, briefly, is in the relationship of a husband and a wife in verses 18 and 19. The Bible says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, and husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. The Bible consistently teaches here and in many other passages that in a healthy marriage between two equal and equally important Christian people, the husband has the role of what the Bible calls headship. That's usually the term that's used. Now that last sentence I just uttered sounds absolutely crazy, if not outright threatening and harmful in our modern world where authority is often understood to mean power and domination. And uh, submission is often understood to be subservience or condescension coming in underneath somebody else. So what's going on here? Those are clearly unhealthy concepts, and if we see them taught in the Bible, we wonder what in the world is going on. And what's going on is that Jesus is reframing our concepts of headship and submission. You see some of that right here even in the text. You see the words in verse 18, uh, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Interesting phrase, as is, it's fitting. It's appropriate. Why is that, why is that fitting? How is it fitting? It's fitting because it actually reflects Christ himself. The son of God, God become man, actually submitted himself freely, intelligently, and willingly to the will of his Father. Which is really interesting because the Bible is clear that Jesus was fully God. He actually wasn't less than God the Father. He was every bit as much God as God the Father. So is God the Son. They are equals in their godness, in their importance, in their power. And yet, and yet, God the Son freely and intelligently and willingly submitted his will to that of his Father for the ultimate aim of achieving God's purpose. Probably most famously in the Garden of Gethsemane, just as he was about to be arrested, he's praying, God, Father, be there. If there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to go through the ordeal I'm about to go through. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's submission. That's submission. There's nothing abusive about it at all. It is a free and intelligently chosen submission to the will of another for the ultimate end of glorifying God. That's what submission means in the Bible, a free and intelligent and willing deference to another that's born partly out of love for that other person, but ultimately out of service to God. You see, a Christian wife's ultimate authority is not her husband. A Christian wife's ultimate authority is Christ, her king. And similarly for husbands, in verse 19, it says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Do not be harsh. This too reflects 
Christ, who is the head of the church. The Bible says he has headship. There's that word again. The one who submits is also the one who is the head. Jesus wears both hats just as we so often do in life. And what it means that Jesus is the head of the church, it mainly means that, um, not, not that he, he barks orders at his inferiors and that he sort of boorishly demands subservience from us so that he gets what he wants out of us. That's not the idea of Christ's headship over his church. Rather, the Bible makes it clear the idea of Christ's headship over his church is that he laid down his life for the church. He served, he sacrificed himself so that we could have life. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says that the Son of Man, an Old Testament title for Jesus that is a title of exaltation, the supreme one to whom we have to answer, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. You see, in, in the Bible, Jesus Christ takes the concept of authority that we often have and he turns it upside down on its head. What he's actually doing is he's turning it right side up because we have it upside down. We tend to think that authority is something that I'm to use when I have it to push other people down and get what I want or force my view on people. That's never what God intended authority to be. He's putting it right side up. He's saying actually the one who is in the headship position is the one who goes first, the one who lays down his life, the one who serves for the good of all. John chapter 13 illustrated this so beautifully. When the night before he was about to be killed, he grabs his disciples together for the last Passover meal where he institutes communion and he washes their feet. Culturally, that would have been the most distasteful thing to do, a job that was relegated to the lowest of the servants who didn't have any choice. They were just forced to do it. And Jesus takes that role. The disciples are actually offended. They're like, you're our Lord. You're our master. We believe you're God in human flesh. How in the world can you put yourself so far beneath me? You're the master. Why are you serving us? They're appalled. But Jesus says, because he's the boss and he gets low to serve, so we too must, when we're in positions of authority, serve one another. He says, this is, this is what I'm doing. You need to do it too. This is what it means to be in the headship position. The command here, do not be harsh with your wives, husbands, absolutely and unequivocally rules out any kind of rough, domineering, and in any way abusive behaviors. Many people have quoted Bible verses out of context to justify abusive behavior. The Bible never does. Christ lays down his life when he's in the position of headship, and he tells us as parents, and in this case as husbands, to do the same. A husband's headship means sacrificing, laying down his needs for hers, partly out of love for her, yes, he loves and serves his wife, but he ultimately does it out of service to God because his wife is not his ultimate authority. Christ, his king, is his ultimate authority. You see, whether Jesus is in authority or under authority, he reframes authority for us. The old life sees authority as something to manipulate and to fight for the sake of my own interests. I either use it or I fight against it. But the new life sees it as a way to love and serve other people for God's interests and for God's glory. Christian husbands and wives, the Bible tells us, live this out in your relationship with one another. If you do this, God will be glorified. 
He then turns the attention to the second relationship he deals with in this text, that of parents and children. And you find the exact same pattern carrying through. Children, he says, obey your parents. That's an even stronger word than submit to your husband. Obey your parents. Why? Because this pleases the Lord. This pleases the Lord. You see, the old life challenges and questions everything as a form of self-assertion. The new life embraces the authority that God has ordained because it wants to please him. The Christian child's ultimate authority isn't mom or dad, it's Christ. Children, obey your parents, not because they are always right or always deserve it, because they're not. They're sinners and they will make mistakes. And the older you get, the more mistakes you see your parents making. No, children, obey your parents. Why? Because it pleases the Lord. Your ultimate authority is not even your parents. It is your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Obey them for his sake. And use their, your, their, your position under their authority to love them and serve them and honor them. Similarly, in verse 20, parent, or 21, rather, parents, particularly fathers, are told not to provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Don't use the position of authority that God gave you, parents, over your children in order to put the screws down on them too tightly and frustrate them and just sort of domineer them. That's not the point. That's not the point. The goal is that they would not be discouraged, and there's a pretty clear implication of that. Parenting is about encouraging. It's about encouraging kids to develop and grow into all that God intended them to be. That doesn't mean the tone is always encouraging. Sometimes it has to be firm. But the goal is to encourage growth in the Lord, which costs us parents massively. Parenting is not about controlling kids so that they don't embarrass us or manipulating kids for our own emotional needs in that relationship or to be seen as successful. Parenting is not about using our kids to better our own lives. Parenting is about investing ourselves, sacrificing ourselves, and serving them for their lifelong good. Once again, the person in the position of authority is seen to be the one who lays down the greater cost for the good of the other. Just as Christ served the church, so parents sacrifice and serve their kids. This is the way God meant it to be. And once again, verse 21 in the language there makes it abundantly clear. Don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. <clears throat> this emphasis in this language makes it clear that any sort of abuse against children is categorically condemned by God and in Scripture, be that verbal, emotional, physical, or in any other way. In the Bible, parental authority is real, but it's not for the parents, and it's not absolute. Only God has absolute authority. And he delegates authority to parents so that we would use it for the benefit of our kids and the glory of God. And so once again, Jesus reframes the whole concept of authority. He takes the upside-down view we have and he puts it right-side up for us, which looks upside-down to us. He says, parents, if you're in the position of authority, you serve your children. Children, if you're under your parents' authority, you don't fight it, you obey them because your goal is to please God. The new life reframes authority, 
seeing it as a way to love and serve others for the glory of God. And then there's one more relationship this text looks at. And this is the one that actually spends the longest time on. The relationship between masters and their bondservants. Focusing most specifically from verse 22 on, on the relationship of the bondservant to the master. And here we get a really in-depth look at some of the motivations that go on when we are under authority and how we're sometimes tempted to fight it and what the new life of Christ looks like instead. What he tells bond servants in that first century context is don't just do the minimum it takes to please your superior. Rather, put forth the maximum in effort and in quality because you're really aiming to glorify and please God. Once again, authority is seen, whether I'm in it or under it, as a way to serve others for his glory. See this in verse 22. Whatever you do, do your work uh, heartily. Sorry, actually, I need to back up. Verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. That's, that's like the minimum. I'm only going to look like I'm working hard when my boss or my master is looking so that I get credit for being a hard worker, but I'm going to really put forward minimum effort. He says that's not what the new life in Christ does. The new life in Christ leads us to put forth maximum effort with sincerity of heart, the Bible says, fearing the Lord. There it is. There it is. Our primary goal is not to please an earthly boss or master, although that's a secondary goal. We're serving them. The primary goal is to please and honor our Lord. Whatever you do, verse 23, do your work heartily. Do it with, do it with heart because you're doing it for the Lord, not just for men. We're not just trying to please people when we submit ourselves to those who have authority over us in the workplace or in other similar relationships. We're not just trying to please them. We're ultimately trying to please God who is watching, who humbled himself to serve us and submit submitted his will to that of his Father so we can submit to those he has placed in authority over us. And he says, no, verse 24, that it is from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Even if those who are in authority over you don't rightly recognize your work, don't rightly appreciate your work, and that can become very discouraging and very frustrating. But here the Bible confronts our motives. But why are you serving? Why are you serving? Are you serving only for your own selfish ends? To get credit? To get a promotion? To get a pay raise? To get an attaboy? Are you in this for you or are you in it for Jesus? The old life is in it for me. The new life is in it for the glory of my Savior. That affects the way I relate to my boss, to those who have authority over me in the workplace. I do my work as for God, knowing that he is the one who is going to reward me. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. The final encouragement the Bible gives a servant who feels like he's being mistreated by his master or an employee who feels like they're being unjustly handled by their employer, unfairly treated, is if it really is unfair, God will take care of it all. Everything in the person who's under authority, everything in their life is oriented toward God and him being in charge. That's what's being depicted here. The bondservants are told, put forth maximum effort and quality because you're aiming to glorify and please God. And likewise, our final verse, chapter 4, verse 1, then tells the masters, don't abuse your authority by treating those under your authority unfairly, manipulating authority for your own gain. You have a master in heaven. 
the Bible tells those who are in authority. Uh, remember, your leadership itself is a service to your master, and he's going to call you to account for how you led others under your authority. And so if you're in a position of authority, if you are that master with bond servants in the first century context, Christian, our faith in Christ affects the way we approach that task. We recognize that the authority I'm in is a chance to love and serve the people under my authority for the glory of God. What's striking to me about all three of these cases is we kind of pull back and, and turn the corner here to kind of land this plane. Figure out what, what do we do with this? One of the things that's striking to me about these relationships is how remarkably unremarkable everything here is, really. At one level, there's, there's nothing said here that's really complicated or, or difficult to figure out. It's very straightforward. It's very simple. It's very mundane, daily relationships. Husbands and wives and parents and kids, so forth. And yet, and yet everything that's being described here is a radical reforming of how we engage with relationships and authority as naturally sinful people. The common theme throughout all of these is whether we're in authority or under it, Christ reframes what it's all about. It's about loving and serving people for the ultimate aim of honoring and pleasing God. So maybe when you read a text like this, you're something like me. The first place my mind goes is, how am I doing? How am I doing? I think about my marriage. I think about my parenting. I think about my positions of authority that I'm either in or under in my workplace and in other spheres of life. How am I doing? And passages like this can make so many of us feel the weight of how far short we are falling of what God has called us to. So often there's not too much distinguishable difference between the way disciples of Jesus live out authority in their lives and those who don't follow Jesus live it out. And at best, that is a missed opportunity to display the beauty of Christ. We can see how far short we are falling in these, but that in turn can lead us to either a shame-filled paralysis, I should be doing better, I need to be doing better, and then we don't move anywhere, or it can lead us to a self-fueled determination to try to do better. I'm going to do better. I'm going to serve my wife better. I'm going to serve my kids better. I'm going to serve my boss better for the glory of God. I need to be better than this. Both are ultimately traps that will fail to produce long-lasting change. Why is that? Because remember what the whole book of Colossians is telling us. It's telling us to live out the new life that Christ has already given us. Not to redouble our efforts to create a better life ourselves. This is a calling to treat authority this way. is a calling that can be achieved only when we live into the new life Christ has already given to us. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he took our old, sinful, shame-ridden self with him and killed it. That includes the me that wants to be angry with my wife and get her to do whatever I want her to do or be impatient with my kids and snap at them when they're not what I want them to be or get away with as much as I can at work when my boss is not looking, or any of these things. That's all the old me. Jesus took that to the cross and killed it. He says, in all those cases, you're living for yourself. That's what sin does, and I've now freed you for that. You can live for me, which is what you were made for. 
See, when he rose from the dead, he not only killed the old us on the cross, but when he rose from the dead, he created a, a resurrected new you as well, one that's free to live the way Jesus lives, to submit his will to that of his Father freely and intelligently and willingly as we freely and intelligently and willingly submit to the rightful authorities God has put in our lives and to use his position of authority to sacrifice and serve those under it as we then sacrifice and serve for the benefit of those who follow us. So we don't need to try harder to do better, nor do we need to avoid in shame because we're paralyzed. Rather, we put on the new self. And as we, as we talk about very practically what this means, we can look back over the last three or four Sundays, this whole of Colossians chapter 2 and 3, to remind ourselves, what have we learned about what it means to put on the new life? How do we put this on? Very simply, first of all, we identify root sins. We identify root sins. We've talked about this a couple times these last couple Sundays. What, what's the sin beneath the sin, so to speak? If I'm, say, a parent and I'm impatient and angry and overbearing with my children, what's the root sin underneath that? My anger and my harshness is itself a sin, but why am I angry and harsh? Because I'm not getting my way, because I want something, because I need to be in control, because I'm proud and arrogant. What, what is the root sin that's driving that? Identifying what that root sin is and where my heart, not only my behavior, but my heart is far from Jesus is where it starts. You see, if I never identify that root sin, then I will confess superficial sins and change will always be limited in my life. But when I allow the Holy Spirit and I even ask for the Holy Spirit to reveal to me the deep root sin that's driving me to use authority wrongly, that's driving me to put on the old self, now I'm finally free to confess the real sin and the real work can begin. The first step we do is identify our root sins, but secondly, we confess those sins. We memorized a passage of Scripture together as a church a couple months ago in the season leading up to Easter from 1 John chapter 1. It included chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to not only forgive us our sins, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My root character sins are usually so deep, I can't hope to overcome them, but they are not too deep for the forgiving and cleansing work of Jesus. So if I identify that root sin, the second step is to confess it to him. God, yes, I am impatient. Yes, I'm harsh with my children or whatever the sin is, but that's because deep down inside, I need to be right. I need to be in control. I'm proud. Whatever the deep root sin is, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? And then thirdly and finally, once we've identified root sins and once we've confessed those root sins, we choose to live different because Christ is in us. Kind of know what the right thing to do here is. So now help me to get up and go back to my husband or wife, go back to my kids, go back to my boss or my employees and say and do the right thing. And in faith, I get up and I go do that, trusting that he has put new life in me and freed me to live it. And then sometimes we have to repeat that same process over and over again, multiple times, even in the same day. And that's okay. That's the journey of growing in Christ, putting on the new self. 
brothers and sisters in Christ, in the midst of a culture that is fracturing all around us, under the weight of family and marriage breakdown, under the weights of racism, under the weights of a viral pandemic, we have an opportunity to demonstrate a whole different approach to authority and life. The Jesus approach. Not to use authority for our own ends or constantly seek to dismantle authority for fear that it's going to be abused, but rather to embrace Christ our King and delight to submit ourselves to authority where he has ordained it in our lives and use it to sacrificially serve others where we are in it, ultimately for the glory of God. If we do this in our church, in our marriages, in our parenting relationships, in our work relationships, we will be demonstrating that there is a new life that is beckoning to a hurting world. And God will use us to impact thousands of lives in our community. That's my prayer. Would you join me in praying to that end? Jesus, in this passage of Scripture, you've hit some of the key relationships that we all experience in different ways, at different times, and at different levels. It brings up so many questions for us, so many issues, so many past hurts, and yet you go straight after those things, not because you're harsh with us, but because you love us enough to speak the truth and not avoid difficult conversations. And God, so for those of us who are married or who have been married, for those of us who have children or are children, for those of us who have working relationships, God, we bring all of these things to you, asking that you would revolutionize our view of the roles that we play in authority and under authority in all these relationships. That as we enter into relationships as equal people playing different roles, God, would you help us to live out the fact that that is a good thing and show the world that doesn't believe it that such a thing is possible? Not because we're better people, not because we try harder, but because we are living out a completely new life, the kind of life you showed when you submitted your will to the Father and the kind of leadership you showed when you led us by sacrificing for us. If you hadn't done that, we would be dead. And so we thank you for submitting and for leading with sacrifice. Make us now those who willingly and intelligently submit and willingly and intelligently use our roles of authority to serve other people for the glory of God. I pray all these things for our good and your glory in Christ's name. Amen.